Well, good morning. All right. Hey, good to see you guys this morning. Thank you for being here. Um, good to see some of you. Um, well, I, I'm not going to stop there. Good to see all of you. And um, for some uh, first time for a little while being back, great to see you back here. And thank you for masking. Uh, those joining us online, thank you for joining us online on Facebook. Um, feel free to like or comment, whatever, uh, along the way. Uh, but hey, um, I, I want to talk this morning about this series called Follow Me. And I want to start in with this, um, this statement, this idea about the power of a name and how much is in a name. You may have heard it been asked before, hey, well, what's in a name? Well, what's in a name is quite a bit, actually. Um, I don't know if you knew this, and I don't like to talk about it because I don't like to brag, but many of you don't realize that I went to Harvard. And many of you may not realize that I also taught at Harvard. I mean, I don't like to brag about it, but it's also true, right? And those of you who actually know me know that I'm only telling you maybe one-tenth of the truth when I say that thing, because what I did is I went to a seminar at Harvard, and then I happened to share and talk about what we're doing in the Together Initiative at a gathering at Harvard. So I can say, technically, I, I went to Harvard, as long as you don't ask me any questions. And I can also technically say I taught at Harvard, again, if you don't ask me any questions whatsoever. But isn't it funny, though, that if I could carry that, like you and I both know people who have, who have, maybe not personally, but some who have written on their resumes to apply for jobs in senior leadership positions that they went to a certain school, and then later on it's found out all of a sudden, actually, they didn't go. Because the power of a name is significant. When I say that, and if that were actually to be true for me, that I did indeed go to Harvard, which I didn't do, unless you mean walk through campus and like observe it and be kind of taken in by it, then I went to Harvard. But I didn't go go to Harvard, you know what I'm saying? But there's power in that name. There's power in the name. And the, the name that we claim can really serve to advance us and give us opportunities. We know that that's how that works. There are times when your family name has been a great advantage to you. And sometimes maybe even you've been pulled over by a cop who knows your dad or knew your uncle or knew your grandpa. And you're like, oh, you're one of them. I'm going to let you off. That's the way it is. Sometimes if you're a kid rising in school and your brother or sister above you wasn't very good, you kind of live in the shadows of, oh, you're one of those people, right? You're in the name. So the name we have can carry weight one way or the other. Now, there are times, and here's what I want to get to. There are times when we'll claim a name, where we'll claim a name, and if we don't understand the name that we're claiming, we can actually do harm to both ourselves and the people around us. And that particularly is illustrated when people do, like what I said at the beginning, when I write down on paper, hey, I went to Harvard, and leave it at that. Later on, it's found out that I really lied about that, that I didn't actually go. All of a sudden, I let a whole bunch of people down, and I'm hurting people around me. What I want to talk about, the reason I bring up a name this morning is I want to talk about the name disciple of Jesus. Because if you're in the hearing of my message this morning, if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, I want to talk to you about the power of that name, disciple. Not just follower of Jesus, but someone who would say, you know what, I want to be and I have claimed that I am a, indeed a disciple of of Jesus Christ, because there is power in that name. And sometimes, if we don't understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we can long-term do harm to ourselves, to our world, and to our friends and loved ones near us. It's just the way it will work. In fact, many of you know people who've walked away from the faith. Why? Because someone that they looked at and said, oh, they're a disciple of Jesus, but look at the way they're acting. Disciples have a foundational identity. 
And that is what Jesus referenced this morning in our story that we're going to get to right now. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you. That's our gift to you. Um, those online, maybe you have one at home or look it up on your phone. But Luke chapter 14 is the uh, third uh, book or letter in the New Testament. It's kind of the right two-thirds of your Bible. Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to be, and we're going to start at verse 25. I'm also going to put it up here on the screen in case you don't have a Bible with you. So here we go, Luke chapter 14, and Jesus begins, or we, we pick up the account, and here's what happens, that there are large crowds who are traveling with Jesus. So you can imagine Jesus walking through the countryside, and he is successful, so people just want to be around him. His reputation is growing, so people want to be around successful people. And just as if a traveling famous person, whatever you want to call it, would walk through our area or move through our area, so too, you can imagine it. Crowds of people are like, man, there's Jesus. He's the healer. He's the teacher. He's the hot thing. And so they're all kind of gathering around him. And he realizes what's going on, and so he stops. He kind of turns around and he wants to deal with the elephant in the room, and that is that all of you want to follow me because you think somehow this is going to give you benefit, that you can claim when you went home, like, I followed Jesus, almost like I went to Harvard. Well, just to be clear, you can't say you went to Harvard unless you actually were accepted and enrolled. And it's almost like he's looking around the room virtually there and saying, hey, hang on, there's a lot of you in this space who are going to leave here and think that you're following me. But I just want to be clear what it means to actually be a follower. And so he stops and he just addresses it head on to talk about what in the world it means to be a disciple. And so he puts it this way in verse 26, and he doesn't mess around. He says, if anyone comes to me, as you all have gathering around, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be, and here's our word, my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So here's our word. Here's our name. That if you want to claim the name of disciple, Jesus just laid out two qualifications that have to be true if you want to call yourself a disciple. And the first one is you have to hate your family. Now let's just dismiss and go home and hate our families, right? Isn't it interesting? So Jesus begins right away, and he's, he's appealing to a deep cultural value in the, the Near East at that time, the, the honor-shame relationships of the family network, that it is our core identity where we are first born out of and live from. You know this is true. You've experienced and talked with people who still have childhood wounds and pain that impact you throughout your entire adult life. Our family network is so substantive for shaping and changing us. And he's saying, what I want you to do is take your family and set it, if you will, on the altar and be ready to hate that. Hate only in the sense of loving it less than me. Not hate as in a true hate speech, right? But loving less is the idea. It's as simple as that. Now, there are some people who will be sitting around saying, you know what, that isn't a problem, Jesus, because I already hate my family for real, for real. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't even like my parents. My dad hasn't been around and my mom has been absent. Or my, I mean, you tell me, you give me permission to hate my siblings. I already hate my siblings. So this is not all that difficult. I mean, well, I'm already in good shape, right? So this is why Jesus says, hey, just in case there's anyone in the room who already thinks you do that, he adds that little caveat, you see it there. 
even their own life. In other words, if you've already kind of distanced yourself from mom and dad, wife and kids, brothers and sisters, he kind of narrows in. Just in case you think you can dismiss this, he says, even your own life. If you dismiss your family identity, then you go down to, well, what I'm going to do is what's most important for me, like my identity, my interest, my focus right now. And he says, even if this is for you, you need to know that this needs to be something that you put, if you will, on the altar. And then he says, all right, and whoever does not carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Picture, if you will, the, um, the Roman cross being carried on the back of someone walking through the countryside. This, this idea of carrying the cross is this picture of Rome is right and I am wrong. When you carry the cross to death, you're essentially saying, Rome, you're correct, and I am wrong. And Jesus carries that image, and he's like, you're going you're gonna to have to daily recognize the things that I, by default, think are right. I'm going to have to come under the submission of Christ. Like, everything that I do, I'm going to have to say, before I just decide that I'm right, I'm going to have to say, when my right comes in conflict with Jesus' right, he's going to win. He's going to win. He's going to win every time. He's going to win. This is the image of carry the cross, that there's a, an authority above me that I'm going to recognize to the point where I'm going to be willing to die for that authority, even though I'm not going to want to die for it. It's this idea of carry that cross, recognize there's ultimate authority come underneath it. And so he says, if you want to be my disciple, what I want you to do is I want you to take your family's traditions, your family's history, your family's values, and I want you to be willing to set them aside wherever they come in conflict with the kingdom values that he's been teaching, wherever they come in conflict, a disciple must be willing to set that aside and make it secondary. And a disciple must be willing to say, everything in my life, everything in my life is going to come under the authority of Jesus. It is no longer going to be about my best ideas and my focus and my future and my vision. It's going to have to come under the focus of Jesus. And where he conflicts with my greatest values, he's going to have to win. This is about, as an ancient teacher in our faith, Augustine said, it's about the ordering of our loves. What Jesus is getting after here is saying that there's going to have to be the cost of discipleship is the cost of your primary love. What are you going to love primarily? Not that we don't love family. Because I think the family unit was still established by God can serve great, great nurturing purpose in life. Should not be dismissed. This is about primacy. This is about first things. This is about ordering our loves. That the order of that God is loved first, that Christ is loved first above my own interest is what's at stake. And so when Jesus looks around to all the people who are following him, he recognizes that some come and are going to think that they are people who are following Jesus, but they haven't really embraced this truth that there must be a primacy of love given to Christ to the point where I'm willing to die for him. So just to try to drive this point home, Jesus tells two stories. They're really simple to understand, but sometimes we don't apply them in the right way. I'll say at least sometimes I don't apply them in the right way. So he goes on to try to give some color to these ideas that he just said, because he hit him with some hard ideas. And look at verse 28. So he goes on. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? That's what I do when I want to build a tower. That's what I do when I want to build a house, when I want to think about buying a car. We sit down and we do that. We all do that. This is not difficult to understand. 
4, he says, if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build it, began to build and wasn't able to finish. That's true. Very simple to understand. This is every time I drive through Leola, about 15, 20 minutes from here, I see the goat path to my right as I go through that, and I think, okay, started, wasn't finished, short-sighted, right? And a little bit of ridicule and judgment comes into me, and I feel better about myself because I put someone else down. I don't know who I'm putting down, but I feel like, uh, you know. And this is what Jesus is saying. Like, this is a simple concept. Don't build the house unless you have enough money. Don't build the tower. You're just going to take it into account. Not a difficult concept to understand. He goes on, though, in verse 31. He says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Again, simple concept. Let me think about this. I've got 10, they've got 20, we might die. So if that's the truth, verse 32, he goes on, if he is not able, then he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Again, simple idea, simple idea. So just to, to put it in terms, to put it almost in the teaching terms if I can, Let's look at it this way, because these are two parables, similar ideas. I'm going to chart it for you. This is going to be so exciting. You're going you're to love, love this. All right. These parables have, both, have these three things in common. They have a goal, they have a resource, and they have an outcome. The goal of the first guy is to build a tower. He wants to build a tower. We're not sure what he's building a tower for. It doesn't matter. He wants to build a tower. That's the goal. The resource he doesn't have enough of is money. And the outcome, as Jesus says it, is that he's going to be ridiculed. Because he's going to look, if he doesn't have enough, he'll be ridiculed, right? Pretty simple, straightforward. The second parable also follows the same structure. There's going to be a goal, and that is essentially to go to war, considering going to war. The resource is soldiers, and the outcome is, well, surrender when I realize I don't have enough. And this is just the way that Jesus builds us. So often I will, like, the, again, these are not difficult concepts to understand. Like, if you don't have enough, then it won't work out. It's really, really simple. To be honest, however, when I hear these stories, I often apply them in the context of, let's say, a church budget or a building campaign. Well, hey, before we build, let's make sure that we have enough because we don't want to build a tower without the resources. And that's about the extent of how I apply that. But that isn't where Jesus is, right? Like he's in the countryside and there's people gathered around him and he's trying to separate and distinguish. He's trying to give meaning to the name disciple. It means something more than just rolling out of bed and walking alongside Jesus and not giving anything up, so to speak. It means something more. And so then he tells these parables. It's just kind of weird. Like, what does this have to do with being a disciple, though, Jesus? I mean, the tower, the war, the resources, the outcome. And so he draws it in, and he threads it back together. Look at verse 33. He ties it back in in the same way. There's his cue. Hey, pay attention because I'm coming back from the stories, coming back from the stories, going back to where I was in the same way. Come with me. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Those of you who don't give up, those of you who are not able to recognize that your identity must be established in Christ, you can't, can't be my disciples. Then he goes on, salt is good, he says. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And again, I've heard this before, and maybe you have, but I haven't really always put it all together. You don't want to lose your saltiness. What exactly does that mean in this context? And then he finishes this way, whoever has ears to hear, 
let them hear. So because Jesus tied in his story and has finished with these parables, let's go back to our chart for a minute. We have the goal of the tower and war, the resource of money and soldiers, and the outcome of ridicule and surrender. But here's what I think Jesus is saying, that there's a goal of being a disciple. There's a goal that people have of being a disciple, wanting to be someone who follows Jesus with intentionality. But there's a resource that we will often lean into that we need to recognize we don't have enough of. And that is this, family and social values. That Jesus is comparing the tower and the war story with the goal of being a disciple. And he's recognizing, and he wants everyone in the crowd to recognize that when you lean on family values and when you lean on social values, you will not have enough. You will be like the person who wants to build the tower without enough money. You will be like the king who doesn't have enough soldiers. And there will be a negative outcome in your life. And the negative outcome will be ineffectiveness. The salt will lose its saltiness. You will not have the edge that you need. This is a powerful image that Jesus portrays to these people who want to be there and follow him. He's saying, if you want to claim the name of a disciple, if you want to say you're a Harvard grad, if you want to claim the name of the advantages of that, you have to understand the resource behind that. If you think that family and social values, if you think that you can somehow lean into where your family is leading you and lean in on that and on social values, and that is, where is your peer group taking you? Being the most popular, going along with the crowd, being someone who is honored and respected as if that's the highest value. It's almost like Jesus is saying, oh, so you want to you wanna depend on your family to get close to God? Okay, go ahead and tell me how that's going to work. I'll, I'll, I'll wait until you're, until you're done. Go ahead. Go ahead and tell me. Go ahead and tell me. How, how, will, how will honoring your, your family above me make you an effective disciple of Jesus? Go ahead. I'll wait. Go ahead and tell me how being the most popular in your school or in your place of employment, doing things that make other people respect you in this world. Go ahead. I'll wait while you go ahead and tell me how that will make you a salty person, how that will make you effective as a disciple of Jesus. I'll wait while you go ahead and explain to me how the resources that by default we lean into to find meaning and identity, go ahead and tell me how will that make you closer to God? This is such a powerful idea about what it means to be a disciple. It's about primacy. It's about first things. It's about ordering of our loves. See, our families... They're not negative. They're not by default negative unless they demand a primary allegiance or unless I give them a primary allegiance over and above my allegiance to Christ. See, some of us right now just need courage. We recognize our families are treating people the wrong way. We realize that, and I've talked to people in, even in the past couple of weeks, I know you have too, who have a strong matriarch, have a strong patriarch in their family who kind of guides the rudder of that family. They can only vote a certain way if you want to be in that family. They can only post a certain way if you want to be in that family. They're always going to react to stories this way. And their inside jokes kind of push against some people who are not in their in crowd. And Jesus picks on this hard. And he says, the primacy of your love must be courage, even against your family, when what your family is doing is not a primacy issue. When your family is moving you in a place that is against where Christ would really lean, when there isn't love that guides everything that your family is doing, 
And you're going to have to make a decision if you want to still follow me in the countryside or if you don't. Because you can't just roll out of bed and carry with you on this little journey to visit Jesus all of my family identity values and all of the social values and just say, I'm a follower and a disciple of Jesus because it means something to be a disciple. And Jesus picks on family values and social values and says, hmm, if you want to lean on them, go ahead. Just know that you will lose your saltiness and you will be heard by the people around you. They will respect you, but you will be ineffective as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You will lose your voice. You will lose your influence. And you just simply will be like salt that isn't salty, which is a scientific impossibility. It's almost as if you don't really exist in the kingdom in that way. This is powerful teaching from Jesus, and it's hard teaching. And so in light of that, I have two questions. There's two questions for us. The first one is this. What is the order of my love? As I think about this, how do I land this for my own, in my own life? What is the order of my loves? Again, this is about primacy. This is about first things. This is about when I roll out of bed and my feet hit the floor, what do I stand on first? What is my first thought in the day? What's your first thought in the day? What's my beginning point for how I even begin to work or relate to my family? And this, by the way, is a, a long turn to take. It takes years and years to tackle this question. I'm talking, this is not a one-week question. This is a lifetime question. This is a constant question, but it is a turn. Let me give you an illustration of this, and you've probably experienced this in your own life too. When I was younger as a kid for Christmas time, like I loved Christmas for certain reasons. I loved Christmas because I got gifts. And I don't know if you can relate to that as a kid or not when you were a kid. I loved getting gifts. It was a great thing. I grew up in the Caribbean, parents were missionaries, and so we didn't always have as much. But when we got things from the United States of America, and we got to open some new things, like a new remote control truck or whatever, I still remember the emotional response, and it was very positive. Like, this is so awesome. I loved Christmas. I knew about the story about someone named Jesus and all that coming and being born. But honestly, what I loved about it was childlike love. I just liked getting stuff. It was fun. There's a slow turn to that, hopefully, <laughs> for most adults, that hopefully when you turn, and I still love Christmas, but I love Christmas for a different reason now. I love Christmas for a different reason. I still love it, but the reason is deeper. And it didn't take one week or one year. It wasn't like when I was six, then I was more mature than five necessarily, or seven or eight. I don't know exactly when the turn happened, but somewhere along the way, the turn happens, and you realize, oh, I love Christmas for a couple different reasons. I love it now for understanding that this is the moment where God sent his son incarnate in the flesh to be with us. That's a powerful, powerful moment. And I love it because I get to spend time with family uninterrupted to celebrate some of these realities. I don't even remember recent Christmas gifts that I got anymore, right? And maybe you can be with me. But that turn takes a little bit. The primacy of my love is the question. And so as I think about this issue, what is the primacy of my love? We, we also get stuck in this reality that I know and you know you can't order somebody to love someone more. Like, I can't just tell you, and you can't tell me, love Jesus more. I can enact your will to do that. I can ask you to do something of your will. But have you ever tried to convince your child to love beans? You ever tried to convince someone who doesn't like sports, love sports? 
It doesn't work, does it? You can't just tell somebody, love something more. If it did, then all the guys who were chasing all the girls would just say, love me. And they would be like, well, I guess I must because you're convincing. Like, right? It doesn't work that way. So I can't stand here and just ask you or even tell you, love God more. You can't command love. It just never works. That's not the nature of love. And so I want to issue, if you will, kind of a warning and say, listen, be careful. As you are thinking about this, is this true? You might be thinking, is it true? How do I order my loves? What does that mean? You can't even command yourself to love more. You can't just wake up tomorrow and make a list and say, I, I need to love God more. Boom. I'm going to command it in myself. That's not the way the heart works. The only way that I know how to do this is to essentially preach the gospel to myself every day to remind myself where I've come from, to remember where I was, to remember my own sin and failure, and then to remember that God hasn't left me there. It is in the recounting of that gospel story that I, this is where I deserve to be, and God has failed to leave me there. And it is this recounting of mercy that warms the heart to love. It is a recounting of realizing, whoa, this is the depth of where I would be. Like, I am short-tempered when I'm trying to put together Ikea furniture right now. That's the truth. I'm also short-tempered when it comes to putting together bigger problems. And look at where I would be if the mercy of God didn't invade that space. And so what is the order of my loves? How do I even begin to love God? It is this recounting of the gospel. This is where I've been. This is where God has taken me. And this is a long daily, but a long turn of maturing in what it means to love God above everything else. The second question I have is this. Not only what is the order of my loves, but it's this one. Who is the recipient of my love? This is a more daily question. If a disciple of Christ is to be salty, not like angry, bitter character trait, <laughs> but to be someone who is like the salt of the earth, if the salt can lose its saltiness. I'm saying that, that love is salt. That the love of the disciple of Christ is the expression of their saltiness. That love expresses itself in a variety of ways. Love expresses itself in courage. Love expresses itself in courage to talk to your family when it feels better not to. Love expresses itself in courage when you realize that there's someone who I live with. There's someone who I know. There's someone who is in my place of employment who is acting and speaking in such a way that is derogatory, that's painful, that's hurtful. Love is courage. Love is courage to say and do the right things even when it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you respect in the eyes of your family. It's going to cost you respect in the eyes of your friend group. Love is courage to do the right thing and say the right thing. Love is integrity. When you say to your family, I'm going to do this, I'm going to, I'm going to follow through on this, love is integrity. Love is a matter of keeping up with what you say you're going to do. Love is honoring people above myself. If you're leading a business, if you're functioning in a, any kind of financial capacity, it's saying, when I make a deal, I'm going to make sure that this deal works for you as well as it does for me. Even though I could get away with it honoring me more, I'm going to honor you in this space because this is what I need to do. Love is honoring you just like I'm honoring myself. Love is this space of saying, I'm going to step up to meet the marginalized, the poor, the hurting, because they need it, just like we all do. So who is the recipient of my love? Who around me throughout the day feels that love and experiences that love? 
So some of us are a slave to our family, our peer pressure group. We want to follow Jesus, but we're just kind of in the room. We're just kind of around. We're just kind of walking through it. It's almost as if coming to church makes you a disciple, and it doesn't. Just like walking around the countryside with Jesus would make you a disciple. It doesn't. Jesus is just clear. If you want to claim the name, if you want to say that you went to Harvard, you don't just get to say it because you walk through campus. You don't just get to say that because you happen to walk by someday. If you really want to call yourself a disciple of Jesus, then Jesus says, all right, let me tell you two stories. There's a guy who wanted to build the tower. He didn't have enough money. People made fun of him. There's a king. He had 10,000 going against 20. He said, I'm going to surrender. And then there are people who said they want to be a disciple, but they leaned on their family and social values more than following me. And their lives became ineffective in what they did. And so there's a cost to discipleship. But the cost isn't work harder, command yourself to love God more. The cost is an invitation to love Jesus above everything else. The cost is an invitation to say, above all, I'm going to carry the cross in the sense of I'm going to set aside my family, I'm going to set aside my stuff, I'm going to set aside my peer group, and through it all, I'm going to follow Jesus. No matter what it takes, I'm going to follow him. That's the cost. But that's also the gift. Because you want, and I want, a life that matters and makes an impact. And when you follow Jesus with everything you have, this is where Jesus says, yes, you will be salty. And can you imagine a world right now where if everyone who called themselves a Christian were to love their neighbor unapologetically, were to be about reconciliation, were to be about humility and language, were to be about building up instead of tearing down, were to be unreservedly for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace that he brings. That, that would be a world-changing place to be. That is why Jesus says, if you want to follow me, hate your family, hate your identity in that, hate your identity in your peer group, love me. That's where you will find and I will find life eternal. All right, next week, Jesus tells us another story. One that I'm really looking forward to talking about. Repentance, kindness, mercy in a powerful, powerful way. All right, look forward to seeing you guys next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to step into this parable, this teaching of Jesus. Some things that we have maybe heard before in the sense of the stories from Jesus, but I pray that as we engage them this morning, as we hear again this question of primacy, of first things, of a love that engages when our feet hit the floor in the morning, of questions that go through our mind to start our day, what's the order of my loves today? I pray that you would help us not to make our family our primary love, not to put on them the burden of being our ultimate, not to put on the, our spouse the weight of being our savior, or to put on our family the weight of being our savior. We hurt them when we do that. I pray that we can honor our families, and as much as our families turn us to Jesus with constant, may those families grow in depth, in reach, and in influence. May families that move us to submit to Christ first, 
be families that multiply over and over, that we can be raising disciples of Jesus who love with courage, with humility, with intentionality, with service, whose saltiness is there because they're willing to love Jesus even when it means a loss of family values and a loss of social values and a loss of reputation here on earth that we can do the right thing in your eyes. So I pray that you'd help us to love well, that we can engage with those around us throughout our days as people of love, people in, involved in caring for those closest to us. So I pray that you give us the courage to ask these questions. What's the order of my love and who receives my love today? When our feet hit the floor, give us the courage to love you well, no matter what. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, guys, thank you for being here this morning. It's good to see you. Um, I'm going to mask up, and in a second, I'm going to join you outside. If you are hanging out, be glad to say hello. On the way out, um, we'll gather around the trees out there if you'd like, and we'll, we'll chat out there. You can remove your mask if we can stay socially distant out there. All right? All right, guys, have a great day. We'll see you later. Thanks.